Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job, and you can find out more by visiting their website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. We'll also visit with Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We have a Labor Day. Today's Labor Day. Uh, we'll talk about whether we should have a Capital Day as well. And Jim McTagg, he's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. Father Leader in its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. He'll be joining us as well. It is Labor Day, September the 6th, and on this day in 1901, President William McKinley was shaking hands at the Pan-American Exhibition in Buffalo, New York, when a 28-year-old anarchist named Leon Zozlos approached him and fired two shots into his chest. The president rose slightly on his toes before collapsing forward and saying, Be careful how you tell my wife. Zozlos uh, moved over to the, uh, with the president with the intent of firing a third shot, but was wrestled to the ground by McKinley's bodyguards. McKinley, still conscious, told the guards not to hurt his assailant. Other presidential attendants rushed McKinley to the hospital where they found two bullet wounds. One bullet had superficially punctured his sternum and there had dangerously entered his abdomen. He was rushed into surgery and seemed to be on the mend by September the 12th. Later that day, however, the president's condition worsened rapidly and on September the 14th, McKinley died from gangrene that had gone undetected in the internal wound. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt was immediately sworn in as President of the United States. Zozlos, a Polish immigrant, grew up in Detroit and had worked as a child laborer in a steel mill. As a young adult, he gravitated towards socialist and anarchist ideology. He claimed to have killed McKinley because he was in the head of what Zozlos thought was a corrupt government. He was convicted and executed in an electric chair on October the 29th, 1901. The unrepentant killer's last words were, I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the working people. His electrocution was uh, allegedly filmed by Thomas Edison. On September the 16th, after receiving a funeral benefiting a president in Washington, D.C., McKinley's coffin was transported by train to his hometown of Canton, Ohio, for burial. <clears throat> Shot on this day. Well, Saturday games are back. Talking about football, incredible scenes as fans flock back into college football stadiums across America with no masks or social distancing despite a surge in COVID cases and hospitalizations. Uh, fans were just, just amazing to see what happened in Alabama, at uh, Florida, Florida State playing a big game yesterday, lost in overtime, but irrespective, fans are out. More than 100,000 fans attended the big house in Ann Arbor to see Michigan route Western Michigan. Tens of thousands fanned packed stadiums throughout the country, including in powerhouse SEC games, health experts advising fans not to attend the games as the Indian Delta variant continues to fuel nationwide surge. But uh, they showed up and they were having a great time. Also, the golf tournament yesterday, lots of fans and not a lot of masks. <clears throat> I think the people have lost their sense of humor about all these mask mandates and lockdowns. 
former uh, senior Trump administration health and human services COVID-19 advisor, Dr. Paul E. Alexander, sat on the Stu Peters show at the coronavirus task force had deliberately deceived the American people, detailing the infighting that occurred between the task force and President Donald Trump while he was still in office. Dr. Alexander said the COVID-19 task force under the Trump administration had the data very early on that showed that COVID-19 was generally non-lethal to most all healthy people. So if you're young, if you're healthy, doing well, middle-aged but healthy, and you had no underlying major medical condition, you would have bumped up against COVID-19 and laughed at it. You would have had no symptoms, mild, he said. Remember, by the COVID uh, CDC's own data, if you are 0 to 19 years of age, and this was very early on, we had the data, your risk of survival was 99.98%. If you were 20 to 49, the data showed that if your risk of survival, if you'd been infected, was 99.97%. And if you are 50 to 70, your risk of survival was 99.5%. You're almost 100% guaranteed risk of survival if you were infected. Going further to detail, Dr. Alexander compared the COVID-19 pandemic to a bad flu season. I don't believe that this was a pandemic, he said. This was a difficult flu season, I would say a bad cold season, and would have looked back at this and realized we got through it and society would have survived. <clears throat> That's some information, isn't it? So what's up? Why, why the uh, misleading of us? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, for one, I suspect a lot of people just didn't want to see Donald Trump re-elected as President of the United States. Well, multiple planes in Afghanistan, along with American citizens, and green card holders from other countries are reportedly being held hostage from leaving the co- country by Taliban terrorists. Report from CBS News, which spoke with uh, non-governmental organizations and congressional sources, claimed that the jihadist organization is not giving permission for any of the planes to leave the airstrip in northern Afghanistan, even though they have permission to land in Doha. Report claimed to have seen excerpts from a State Department email to members of Congress that they are charter flights on an airstrip saying if and when the Taliban agrees to take off, the planes have the necessary permission to land. Some sources from Congress and the NGO are claiming that there are at least two physical planes on the ground and six more with approved clearance, noting the obstacle is the Taliban, which controls the airport, is not letting people board or planes to take off. One anonymous senior congressional source said the Taliban is basically holding them hostage to get more out of the Americans. Another senior congressional source said the waiting group of passengers are held nearby since the terrorists will not allow them into the airport. An NGO group, a non-governmental organization, Ascend, told the news organization they have now been waiting six days to take between 600 and 1,200 people. In the group of people, there are said to be 19 U.S. citizens and two permanent residents. Ascend's executive director told CBS the U.S. airfield in Cater that has been standing by, ready to receive, is now being, beginning to pack up. We hope visibility will uh, add pressure to the force uh, solution. Six days of talks are not encouraging. How about that? Holding our Americans hostage at an airfield. Congressional members were also allegedly told by the State Department they are supposed to be tell groups trying to evacuate out of the airstrip in northern Afghanistan that the U.S. does not have the personnel on the ground in Mazer, we do not have air assets in the country, and we do not control the airspace. <clears throat> well, uh, Millie, or Miley, uh, our 
chief of staff said that uh, you know, that the, this thing was all planned out and it was well planned. This is just one major catastrophe. The whole thing, the whole Afghanistan departure is a catastrophe. Well, a shooter entered the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh back in 2018 and killed 11 people and injuring six more. Three days later, President Trump visited the synagogue where he would, and First Lady paid their respects to 11 wooden stars of David, which had been set up outside. Trump then visited the hospital where the injured, several of whom were police officers, are still recovering. There were protests of Trump's visit, and Pittsburgh's mayor and the governor of Pennsylvania declined to meet with Trump during his visit. Today, in a speech to Jewish leaders, President Biden offered his recollection of the time when he met with people at Tree of Life. I remember spending time at there, you know, going to, you know, Tree of Life synagogue, speaking with them. There's a problem with recollection, though. According to the director of the synagogue, Biden has never visited Tree of Life in three years since the shooting. Hmm. Another lie by Joe Biden. Americans are withdrawing their approval of uh, President Joe Biden amid the swift Taliban takeover and the spread of COVID-19 Delta variant, according to the Washington, D.C., Washington Post, ABC latest news poll. Biden is now seven points underwater in net approval, with 51% of the majority disapproving of his job performance and just 44% approving. This is nearly a full flip from the eight-point positive rating in June in the version uh, of the poll. The handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal is the clear reason for the sinking of support. An overwhelming majority of Americans, 60%, disapprove of Biden's handling of the withdrawal and just 30% approve. It's not just about the fact that Biden withdrew troops from Afghanistan en masse by August 31st because 77% support the decision. It was specifically the way he withdrew, as a majority of opinion on the withdrawal supported that the withdrawal, but disapprove of how he handled it. Just 26% supported the withdrawal and how he handled it. The death of 13 service members from a reported ISIS-K suicide bombing in the final week of the uh, withdrawal is a deal-breaker for the majority of adults, as 53% said Biden bears either a great deal or a good amount of the blame for the attack, according to the Post. The biggest drop in support is among independents, but Democrats, too, have slumped in their support of the president. The large majority of independents now disapprove of Biden's job performance, and 14% rise from a minority of 43% in June. Even Democrats, while largely in the president's quarter, have shaved eight points of their approval of the president. <clears throat> the president is going underwater, and I think he has no base to count on to support him through these difficult he just made bad decisions, very bad decisions. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. 
Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Hello. Schulman. Mark is an author. Uh, Mark is also uh, the founder and publisher of a terrific website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So we'll be talking about current global uh, events, as we have for the last, what, 13, 14 years. How 15 years already. 15. So uh, let's start off with Afghanistan, Mark, and uh, the developments there. So, you know, there haven't been a lot of developments in the last week, except trying to understand what went on and coming to grips with what we did, so to speak. Um, and, you know, we've discussed this over the years, and I've always been uh, split in terms of my opinion of what American policy should be. Um, and in retrospect, I think I was wrong in being split. I, uh, When President Biden made his statement about we would not be, be in Afghanistan to fight for women's rights, um, while in theory I agree with that, I also think it, it, it misses the whole point, and therefore we really have this problem, because we didn't go into Afghanistan to intervene in a civil war. We went into Afghanistan for our own reasons, which was to find those responsible for 9-11, and while we were at it, we started remaking that uh, that country, at least significant portions of that country, particularly the women. So the question always is, what is our responsibility? We started something, and now we got tired of it. You know, the American people have spoken in the sense that 
Every public opinion poll shows that close to 80% of Americans wanted us out of Afghanistan. It was by, it was um, both parties. I mean, President Trump clearly wanted out, thought of the process in, and President Biden agreed with it, continued the process. Um, so it's a bipartisan decision, but bipartisan decisions sometimes can be wrong. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't know that the American people or the individuals would want to would want to pay the price of probably 50, 100 dead every year in order to maintain um, the freedoms for the people of Afghanistan. Um, but at least, um, and, you know, so much of the corruption there was our own fault to a very large extent. So I don't know. Very mixed feelings, very saddened by it, and it will have long-term implications. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my understanding is they were teaching things like at the university, like uh, gender studies, and <laughs> they were trying to, doing all this folks nonsense. Uh, to your point, I mean, we had a purpose in going there. We should have maintained the purpose. I mean, is their culture? They have. They have. If they well, ask, that's the question. Their culture. You know, that's that. I find <clears throat> derogatory in sense. Their culture. Their culture to keep women in the house, not to let them go to school, uh, force them into marriages when they're fifteen. Is that okay to say that's their culture? I think it, you know, uh, it's like. You're being almost you're you're almost the one being politically correct or too politically correct. Here. Well, no, but Mark, here here's the thing. This is not just Afghanistan. This is throughout the uh, the Muslim world, <laughs> throughout the extreme parts of, of of religions all over, particularly Islam. That is right. absolutely true. And the question is, is it acceptable? Do we accept the way it was? And again, if we had never shown up, then okay, the the, the women of Afghanistan may never have known what an enlightened world could be. But we did show up for our own reasons. Not, yeah. not for the, we did not show up in Afghanistan on behalf of the women of Afghanistan. Right. We showed up because we had a national security interest in fighting al-Qaeda and everything that goes with it. So, again, I, I am not, you know, it's too late to suggest a policy or not. It's just an understanding that, um, I don't know, when you start something, the question is, are you entitled to get tired of it? Are you entitled to say, I've done enough? I'm walking away. I don't know. I don't have the answer to the question. Right. I'm just um, saddened by it, and we're left with that big question mark. Yeah. No, I, I, the, the big issue for me is just how we went through the process of withdrawing, and I listened to our uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, leader, uh, Watt Miley, suggesting that this was one of the possibilities. It was well-planned, and we did a great job. I, the president said that, and I'm just scratching my head. How, how, how can that possibly be the case? Well, okay, here's the issue. The, the problem was, it was a fine job if you take into the fact that it started a week and a half too late, right? In other words, there was very little that was going to be done once the, once the Taliban had captured Kabul. Um, your options are pretty limited, unless you want to send in 50 or 100,000 troops. If you wanted to do that, you could you know, maintain Kabul and, and do it over a period of months. But once you've decided you don't want to send in 100,000 troops or 50,000 troops, and once they've already captured Kabul, you're, you're limited. You're very, very limited. Look, the biggest failure here was an intelligence failure. Yep. The lack of understanding that the Afghan army was going to collapse instantly. Right. Not even, you know, over a period of time, but literally instantly. Turn over the keys and walk away. But they knew that. Um, they, we knew that. And uh, we continued to put on this happy face about the progress that we're making with the Afghan army. It's just incredible that the, that, uh, the uh, Pentagon, everybody did four that. Four administrations, yeah. four administrations, 
yep. you know, saw, saw the good side of what they wanted to see, you know, from President Bush to President Obama to President Trump and now to President Biden. He was right. actually the most realistic in the sense that he didn't think that anything was salvageable. Well, I'll say this. Uh, you'd mentioned 40,000 troops. Uh, you know, that would be true if we had to maintain peace and harmony throughout Kabul, but the the purpose was simply to get the Americans out. We could have just made sure there was coverage at checkpoints. Well, we could have uh, we could have had a limited number, I think, troops, maybe 10,000. Listen, look, look, we lost 13 troops to a suicide bomber when the only permit we had was the airport. Yeah. Just think if we had to have a permit or they're going into, the, into this Kabul maintain some sort of location inside Kabul. So maybe it'll be 30,000 troops. We had 6,000 troops, don't forget. 6,000 troops were not enough to do what we just described. So is it 12,000? Is it 25,000? It's some significant number of troops would have had to have been surged in there. And don't forget one of the biggest problems when you do this thing I mean, is, is pulling out. I mean, and for better or for worse, other than the suicide bombing, um, every American troop that went in came out. Well, we have, uh, it's my understanding, there's six airplanes of folks waiting in an airport right now, uh, and the Taliban... In, 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 in northern Afghanistan, that, that seems to be the case with mixed groups of people, etc. Uh, clearly, there are going to be problems. You're going to have people who are, who are still going to be in the country, people who didn't want to leave initially. Um, but, you know, losing a war is never pretty, let's be honest. No, well, it's, it's certainly left a stain on uh, the American brand for sure. I, I just wonder who can continue, who will trust us around the world anymore? It's just Well, uh, who's, you know, the question is, <coughs> does America know what it wants? Right? I mean, that's, that's really the question. And so who can trust us? Well, who can trust us is if, if people believe that America is committed to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Can you say that America is committed to... You know, in terms of foreign policy right now, let's not talk about, not talking domestic for the moment. Can you say with a shadow of a doubt that America is committed to some set of policies that is bipartisan? Remember what we used to have? We used to say that farm, that domestic politics ended at the, uh, was it the shores, at the uh, shores end or something? I forgot the exact yeah, term, something uh, like that, right? Right. In other words. Yep. Um, that was a few. Republicans, Democrats, they didn't, you know... Uh, maybe during Vietnam they fought over Vietnam, but generally speaking, there was an agreement that foreign policy issues were not were above partisan politics. Yeah, that's that, that's ended. It certainly and has. Therefore, if you're a foreign country, you know what do you believe? What 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 is the future? Yeah, I'm not even certain that the uh, people in in the United States government elected officials are dedicated to the survival and and prosperity of the United States of America. Quite frankly, so. Uh, there's, <laughs> I think there's a real identity crisis going on in the United States right now. Yeah, but I mean, to a very large extent, you know, it's it's funny, it's strange in a certain way. It's it's been brought on by by this hyperpartisanship that you know belonging to my team is more important than belonging to my nation, um, and that's that's the dangerous part. Um, I don't think the divides. When it comes to policy, I really not. I, I've said, I had this discussion with you before, but when it comes to policy, they're not all that great. The divides between uh, between people in, in the United States, they, you know, when it comes to guns, so the issues. No, no, no one in the United, States, no one on the left wants to take away everyone's guns, um, and I don't think anyone on the right believes that everyone should be able to walk around with a machine gun. So. I'm right. I'm talking about gun supporters. I don't necessarily write politically, but so you know, all these issues are not that different. No one, no one at this point wants to get rid of Medicaid. 
No one wants, you know, and I don't think anyone, you know, there's talk, but no one really wants to replace all your doctors with a national health system like, like England. A few people talk about it, but there's no serious, there's, there's no serious policies on those issues. Well, Mark, they're the seriously considering that great. Yeah, they're seriously considering a 3.5 trillion dollar quote unquote infrastructure, human infrastructure program, which is where's the money coming from? I mean, it's just absurd that this could be a serious consideration right now. Unbelievable. Well, don't forget, a lot of it, it is paid for with additional taxes. Um, it's over. We're talking about over ten years, so it's not like spending three point five trillion dollars this year. It'll bankrupt Keep the that country. In mind. It, yeah. it sounds like a humongous sum. I'm not supporting it or opposing. I'm just putting it into perspective. We're not talking about spending three point five trillion dollars next year. Oh, but well, I should. It's a multi-year project yeah. that's paid for with additional taxes. Remember something. You know, do you know what the um, highest marginal rate in the United States was when John F. Kennedy became president? It was, I think, in the 70% area or something like that. 89% was the highest rate. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and now I think the combined marginal rate with, in, in state and, you know, you're talking about something in the area of 40%. You know, Mark, you just, so, I watch uh, $90 billion worth of equipment being uh, just left no, on no, the no, it, was not, it wasn't equipment. Stop. Also, not uh, falsehood. $90 billion is what the United States spent in the last 20 years on training and equipping the Afghan army. That includes all the training, all the money that was paid to all of the um, third-party contractors, probably the ones who, they're the ones who did the best in Afghanistan, well, all these my, Blackwaters and all, all these other groups. Yeah, but my point, um, is, my point is this. I don't care if it's 15 cents. I mean, the, the total disregard for American taxpayers' money is just totally, I pay taxes, I don't know about you, but it's just appalling to me see, to see the waste that we have in all sectors of uh, the United States government. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, you look at any government in the world and you'll find waste, there's no question about it. And farm, and wars are the most wasteful. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. Wars are by far the most wasteful when you think about it. Whether you agree or don't agree with, let's say for the sake of argument, um, hot lunches in schools, right? Yeah. For every, you know, let's just let's take that as an example. You can you can agree or not agree whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. But at least you know, basically, you're giving a lunch to somebody. Yeah. In the in a war, it all disappears. Yeah. It's all waste. Well, there's a book called uh, "War Is a Racket," <laughs> and you know, yeah, you, you that's get, absolutely the case. Certainly, you, in this modern day, with all our private contractors, etc., there's no question about absolutely. it. Absolutely, and 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 the point is, you raise the issue about what is our purpose. Well, sometimes the purpose isn't on the surface. It's got something to do with the the uh, back room and what's happening in terms of the planning of all these things. But absolutely. That said, let's let's move on to COVID because uh, the, you're you're right now in Tel Aviv, as mentioned to our listeners, and uh, there's some strange things going on in when Israel with regard to the uh, 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 the outbreak. Absolutely. Of COVID. So, so Israel, Israel was one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, and then starting in the beginning of the summer, numbers started rising, or end of June started rising rapidly, um, and at the moment the numbers are are fairly high, amongst the highest in the world in terms of um, infections. Mm -hmm. However, two things have happened um, uh, since then. Number one, um, Israel started giving out booster shots about six weeks ago, and uh, the numbers have been, numbers of people above 60 who are the first ones to get the boosters who are getting seriously ill have plummeted. So the first actual statistics are out, and somebody with a booster shot is 
nine times less, one-ninth, uh, likely to get um, seriously ill than someone who just has two shots, and 39 times less. In other words, uh, one-thirty-ninth of someone who has not been vaccinated. Now, Israel has taken an interesting position, basically. There are no restrictions. Mass events have been taking place, and they've put everything on the vaccine. Um, at the moment, the numbers uh, have begun to turn around and start going down. Um, one of the big issues, of course, is almost 60% of the people who are ill are, are kids. Yeah. So kids can't be vaccinated yet. So that, that therein lies one of the biggest problems. But the are they are they are they getting seriously ill, hospitalized, or, or is it like only a small number of the kids are getting seriously ill? More and more of the people are getting seriously ill, the younger people who did not vaccinate. In other words, people in their 30s and 40s and, and those. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of people above 60, I believe 95% of Israelis above 60 have been vaccinated. And despite that fact, um, more people who are seriously ill are amongst the, or 60 and above are unvaccinated. So if you look at that, if, you, if only 5% of the population of people over 60 is unvaccinated and more than 50% of those who are ill are unvaccinated. It tells it all to you, basically. So my understanding is so the record... The other question... Oh, go uh, ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Go, go ahead, Andy. The other thing that's interesting, which is um, more about actually South America of all places, where numbers have begun to really decline rapidly. So one of the big questions about COVID, which we don't, no one really has the answer to, is that it seems to be this... It goes in waves. And the question is... These waves seem to recede at some point for reasons that no one quite understands. Mm-hmm. Not being an epidemiologist or making a guess after watching this carefully for two years, is my guess is that a certain percentage of the population is more susceptible than others, and COVID wreaks havoc amongst those who are not vaccinated and are more susceptible. And once it goes through all the people who are more susceptible, the virus slows down. Mm. But that's just a real guess. So I understand that that uh, right now in Israel they're considering uh, the, a second booster after the shots. No, there's no just talk about a second booster. I, I I saw that on my social media today. People were saying to me, "I heard Israel's going for a fourth booster," and I was like, "No, Israel's not going for a fourth booster. Israel is talking about the fact that they may need a booster every six months." In other words, mm-hmm. what seems to be the case is that the shot loses its um, the vaccine loses its ability to stop stop diseases by about 50% at the six-month point. In other words, it it doesn't last beyond six months, at least the second dose doesn't. No one's quite sure the third dose. third dose seems to give more protection than even the second dose did originally. So, again, you know, one of the biggest problems with COVID is that the science keeps on changing and new information, and we don't really know everything. So... Just now, they're starting to have um, statistics on the third on the third thing. There is no talk whatsoever. It's fake news, and literally, I received it on my social media media this morning. So I don't know who came out with this story, but there is no talk right now of fourth a fourth shot. Only the discussions in theory that maybe we'll have to look into whether whether people need these shots every six months or eight months, or you know maybe be a regular thing or not. That's an unknown. Yeah. Well, talk about uh, yeah. My suspicion all along is that we'll end up with uh, each of us becoming an ATM for Big Pharma because uh, there will be need repeated uh, boosters for this thing. So uh, we'll see how this. Well, Big Pharma is a real problem. There's no question about it. You know, we could nationalize them. That's one way of going. Yeah, but I'm sure you know that's it's one of the big problems, right? You, what in terms of, um, it's obviously a bad idea to nationalize companies. But 
think about it from a different perspective. Let's not talk about um, let's not talk about um, the booster shots for vaccines. Let's talk about insulin for a second. And how did insulin shots be- start becoming a hundred dollars a shot when they were used to cost two dollars? Yeah. So. Well, interesting questions. Well, some of the questions has to do with the money uh, behind in politics. I mean, one of the congressmen who retired that I talked to said, "You know, we've got the best government that money can buy," and he makes the point. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we have of uh, K Street and all the money that comes in that uh, influencing how legislation is done, and I think big par- big pharma is a big part of that. Well, absolutely no question about it. Look, uh, John McCain and um, I forget who McCain. I forgot who the Democratic was who passed the campaign finance reform uh, were right when they did it. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court basically said that money is speech, which right. I think was one of the, the oddest and most detrimental decisions the, the Supreme Court made to talk about the fact that money is speech and therefore it can't be, can't be stopped. Money is not speech, and a corporation is not an individual. So, Mark, uh, we we have so many. And that's a that's an entire show that we <laughs> you just brought up, but uh, we have just uh, a little time left, and uh, have a couple of other topics to talk about. What's top of mind for you with these uh, Thailand, uh, Guinea? So, there's two things. I mean, so I, I mentioned Guinea where there was a coup last night, and the uh, the sad thing about the coup last night. This makes the third African country in the last couple of months that has been a coup d'état by the military. Mm. Um, and you know, Africa was making such was making nice progress in terms of both democracy and economically. Um, but the militaries in three countries have now taken over the countries, and I I don't know what the cause is. To be honest with you, it's a it's a troubling, it's a troubling matter because so much of the youth of the world is actually in Africa, and the growth is in Africa. And if Africa was heading in the right direction, it was good good for the future. It's turning around and going the other way, then it's just not good for any of us, let's right. put it that way, on a, on a broad level. Um, you know, none of this directly affects the United States, and no one's, no one's talking about intervention in any of these places or anything else. But watching it happen, one has to wonder, you know, what is going on. Well, and, and, and it just um, raises the question about Chinese influence as well, the Chinese Communist Party. Right, that, that's, that's the question. We don't know. I mean, <clears throat> has there been Chinese influence in these cases or not? Um, could be, but China... China's policies have really not been similar to the Russians, in the sen- or the Soviets, let's put it that way, in the sense that the Chinese believe in economic exploitation and using their money to, uh, to influence. The Russians used to be involved very much in arranging coups and those sort of things. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe there's an economic interest in having these coups on the part of the Chinese, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't see Chinese everywhere. There are a lot of places, but, you know, it's one thing to be, and it's something to be looked at, no question about it. Right. Well, Mark, as usual, we've run out of time before we've run out of topics to talk about, but I genuinely appreciate your most well-informed commentary here on the show, Mark. Again, I want to refer to Have a great week, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much. You as well. Thank you. By the way, again, HistoryCentral.com. Good for kids of all ages. I hope you check out the website, HistoryCentral.com. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. I proudly served as board chairman for 15 years, and now they're building a performing arts center in downtown Naples and having a great series of productions coming up. I hope you'll visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we have Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Happy Labor Day to you. <laughs> and happy Capital Day to you. As well. So we're going to be talking about that. Before we do, though, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We're a privately funded group uh, focused on educating and inspiring young people and ideas of private property, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and personal character. And we do that through our website, which is fee, F-E-E dot org. Uh, through online video and daily commentary, as well as uh, events in person all over the country. Terrific organization. If you have a young per person in your life or people, age high school or uh, college age, introduce them to this terrific organization. I've been to the national conferences in the past, and it is terrific to see young people engaging and talking and celebrating about liberty and personal responsibility. Fee.org is the website. Larry, you wrote a piece, Happy Capital Day. Hmm. Tell us about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, as everyone knows, today is Labor Day, the first Monday of September, and I wouldn't take anything away from that. I think Labor Day is something uh, worth having and worth celebrating. But uh, when it comes to uh, the reasons that we are productive in the, uh, the marketplace or the workplace, uh, it, it isn't just because of the labor we put forth. It's also because of the capital that we employ. Uh, 
and uh, everybody uses capital. I mean, even the uh, uh, the poorest of people who has uh, a simple lawnmower to cut his grass is using capital equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you use a shovel to dig a hole instead of your hands, you're using capital equipment. Uh, when you drive from, say, Miami to Seattle, which you could do in uh, about four days, that's a lot better than uh, walking the distance, uh, which would take about four months. And that, uh, what makes the big difference is the capital equipment, the car. So uh, I wrote a column <clears throat> simply making the case that we should celebrate uh, capital as well as labor and the fact that when they both work together, we are infinitely more productive than if we have either one by themselves. That's such an important point. And, of course, uh, you also make the point that we have lots of labor. The problem is that nobody has enough capital to get everything they want. You know, the old saying in business is now we've run out of money, so we have to think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It takes innovation. (laughs) <laughs> the poorest countries in the world, there's plenty of labor. In fact, uh, they work typically a lot longer and harder in poor countries than they do in rich countries. So, uh, But capital is something that everybody needs. You always need something that would make uh, you um, uh, more productive through the use of that capital, something that would save on labor, in fact, and uh, produce more output. Right. Well, in fact... One of the things that people talk about, the reasons why companies have left the United States is for cheaper labor. But the fact of the matter is, with the improved or or better capital use that we have here in the United States, labor is more productive per hour than in other parts of the world. Yes, exactly. Uh, Just imagine the difference in building uh, the foundation for a home in the United States versus, uh, say, Bangladesh or Chad in Africa. Uh, in one place, you've got bulldozers and heavy equipment and lots of technology, <clears throat> and you can get it done quicker and better. But uh, in some of those other places, uh, they're not blessed with the kind of capital equipment, so it takes longer, and the job isn't as well done. Yeah. I mean, during the labor mu- movement back in the uh, late uh, 19th century and uh, the 20th century, there were real reasons to uh, provide support for and then unions and so forth to uh, make sure that labor was treated better than it had been treated in some places. Uh, but I think that movement has kind of moved now to a different level because employers understand they have to take care of their employees in order to be successful. If you have employee turnover, it's extremely expensive. And uh, Yeah, and for... Uh, workers these days, there are more opportunities for them than there uh, to to not only uh, uh, move to another place right. because we're far more mobile and we can go where the jobs are if we really want to, but also there are more opportunities to create a job for yourself, to work out of your home, to use technology to uh, start a company uh, from the, your garage. Such a great point, and uh, not only do you have to take care of labor, you have to take care of capital, too. I mean, some sometimes uh, we try and get too much out of the capital we have. We run that machine too long, or we're, you know, in other words, don't treat it properly, and the consequences, we end up having a setback there as well. So I think your point is really, it's not one better than the other. Your point is that nothing gets done unless they work together. Yeah, exactly. They are complementary factors of production, and uh, they, the, the outcome is so, mar- so much more uh, productive whenever the two work together. If, if labor and capital are antagonistic, 
then uh, the end result is lower wages because you have less output. Right, and uh, unfortunately, there are some people who want to make them antagonistic and want to, uh, you know, penalize the rich, so to speak. And so, and, yeah. and uh, they shouldn't. It shouldn't be that way because people need to work together in order to. The old saying yeah. is, uh, "Well, there's plenty for everybody. If somebody gets greedy, there's not enough for anyone." Yeah, and some people actually make their living by preaching that the two factors of production are antagonistic. Uh, a lot of labor union leadership. Uh, does that, that because it, I mean, if they pronounce, "Hey, everything's fine. You don't need us," they they be out of a job. So they're constantly uh, preaching antagonism, and we don't get enough, and they're not doing it right, and we can do it better, and we want more, and so forth. Uh, it, it, they're in the business of creating antagonism where often there might not be any at all. Absolutely. So uh, we have a Labor Day. Any chance we'll have a Capital Day? Well, it doesn't seem to be on any politician's uh, near-term horizon, (laughs) but that doesn't mean we have to sit back and wait uh, to celebrate capital until some politician decides to do it. In our own way, every day, uh, we can take note of the fact that capital is critically important and that it should work in a complementary way with labor uh, to make us all more productive. Absolutely. I just encourage our listeners to go to the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. I think this, if I'm not mistaken, this is posted on the website. Capital, Happy Capital Day, it reads. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTigg. He is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Uh, he retired. Now he's writing, and he's written a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader, and a sequel, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. 
Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. I proudly serve on their board, and I hope you'll check out the website, thefga.org. We have this Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Bob. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my uh, computer screen, and I have um, eight quotes from Ronald Reagan I pulled up. It's from the House GOP. It's, it's on taxes, uh, uh, and, and I love it. Uh, uh, his his uh, quotes are like, uh, we don't have a trillion-dollar debt because we haven't taxed enough. We have a trillion-dollar debt because we spend too much. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the old Reagan quotes on taxes because uh, I, beginning this month, the uh, Democrats are going to force a, a $3 trillion spending bill uh, through Congress. You know, they won't get any Republican votes, but, but it will be passed, $3 trillion. And then they're going to turn around and pass a huge tax bill that won't even pay for this. I mean, it, it will... It will radically increase taxes, um, and, and you know when you spend a lot, you have to tax a lot. But but it won't even come close yeah. to paying the tri- three trillion dollar bill, and it's going to have. And they're doing it with so little debate, with so little careful thought. It reminds me of the evacuation from Afghanistan. That the unintended consequences. Uh, are going to be mind-boggling. And, uh, for example, they might inadvertently, by raising taxes on corporations, force the corporations to relocate operations overseas in places like China, which which are not our friends. Right. Um, Uh, You make great points, but I'm shaking my head here. You said something that's just made me double-take. You think we're going to pass, they're going to pass this $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill? I do. It might not be uh, exactly $3.5 trillion, but it's going to be very close to $3 trillion. I think the handwriting is on the wall. Um, there are stories today that indicate that Joe Manchin of West Virginia is wavering. Uh, no, it, really? Yes. So, so I do think we're going to get a massive spending bill, and we're not going to get uh, the taxes we need to pay for it. You know, it would be the first tax increase since 1993. Now, uh, Clinton increased taxes in 1993 without any Republican votes, uh, but there was a huge difference between Clinton and Biden. Uh, Clinton was fixated on reducing the deficit. Uh-huh. You know, he, he was really tapped into the bond market, and, uh, and he wanted to bring down interest rates, and, and he, he wanted to put the uh, United States on firm financial footing. So not only did he raise taxes, he cut spending by close to $300 billion, which was significant back then. It sounds like a piddling amount today, but $300 billion uh, when Clinton was president back in 1993, you know, that was, was serious uh, money. 
and he did manage to be the first president, uh, you know, since World War II at least, to have a budget surplus. Now, wasn't and, wasn't and that I, in concert with Gingrich and that group back there back then? Oh well, well, it was. But I mean, I mean, remember the, the uh, another big difference between the, the politics and and the politics today. Uh, Clinton was big on something called triangulation. Do you remember that word? I do. That, that was, yeah. Uh, so he was willing to compromise. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so he sort of went along with Gingrich and the boys, and we ended up with a, a budget surplus. Uh, we don't have triangulation today. No. You know, uh, we, you know uh, what we have is each party trying to strangle the other party, so that's called strangulation. Um, I must say that so, I would say that Clinton maybe is the best retail politician we've had the last fifty years. <laughs> I, I didn't like his politics. I don't like what he standed for, but uh, stood for. But the guy had his way with he could he could negotiate. He could. He was you know I used to compare him back then to Wiley Coyote, and and, and the Republicans uh, to the road, or, I mean him to the Roadrunner yeah. and the Republicans to Wiley Coyote. He 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 was. Uh, he knew where he wanted to go. I mean, and he for the economy. He he was a wonderful president, and he uh, f- for the economy. And he was lucky because uh, you know simultaneously the stock market was way up because we had the tech bubble. Yeah. So so we had a bubble. You know, just like today we have a stock market bubble. We had a bubble then. So, um, but Biden, on the other hand, uh, doesn't really care about deficits. Um, he cares about he doesn't care about the ramifications of uh, raising taxes he you know he's looking at income distribution and he really doesn't seem to care about the effects on the actual economy so so what you get preliminarily is that you know the spending will initially increase our gross domestic product looks good on paper, but the taxes will subtract from that GDP so that going forward, it's, you will, the Biden plan is a net negative for the U.S. economy. Um, uh, let me add uh, to, to your listeners who are very intelligent people. Uh, I'm not an economist. I used to report on economists. And two places I like to visit or three places I like to visit for tax information. First is the Tax Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, the Tax Foundation claims to be independent. There's no such thing as an independent think tank anywhere in Washington. Right. That's false advertising. Uh, they lean Republican, but there are old-fashioned Republicans like Doug Holtz Aiken, who was head of the CBO, who was an honest broker. Uh, you remember Bill Archer from Texas Republican? Yep. Uh, Phil English. They're on the board. But... I have to say their information is not propaganda. It, it, it's, it's presented and collected uh, with, with honest atten- intentions. Um, and then the American Enterprise Institute, yep. which is very conservative. Uh, I think their economists are good. And, and for the left-wing perspective, I go to Brookings. And yep. Brookings is old-time Democrats, they, uh, you know, a lot of what we used to call the blue dog Democrats right. who leaned left on social issues, but leaned right on economic issues. So, you know, if you, if you want an informed opinion, which is very difficult to have in the midst of a tax debate, you know, these are three possible 
uh, destinations for your listeners to, you know, to bone up on, on the issues. Yeah. Well, I, what we're going to end up with, in my opinion, with Biden's plan, if it's implemented, is we're going to end up with increasing inflation, we're gonna, in, uh, with uh, companies relocating abroad in order to avoid some of the uh, dr- dr- draconian measures that will be put in place. I think we'll end up with a death tax that will uh, make uh, people that own properties uh, you know, drive, make them sell at distressed prices. Then we're going to end up with so many bad consequences. And this guy is just, he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't think he should be impeached. I think he should be court-martialed down in Guantanamo <laughs> Bay and, and put in front of a firing squad or, or a, a, a life, life imprisonment. Well, there's, there's no question he's a one-term uh, president. If you, if you, you know, I read the Washington Post uh, for you know, I visit sites left and right. Uh, the Washington Post uh, editorially has turned against uh, Biden, and there there is a negative Biden story on its front page nearly every day. Hmm. You know, be, beginning with the uh, Afghanistan fiasco, but uh, they're very much down on him because of you know today the the extended jobless emergency benefits that went in effect with COVID. Uh, they they end. He, he's passing the buck to the states, much like Trump passed the buck to the states on the uh, nations. And, and, of course, the states uh, are just, uh, you know, many of them are just states of fiasco. Right. So, so the, the bottom line is these benefits disappear immediately. So, so now the, the, the upside is, you know, people will go out and maybe they'll fill some of those jobs uh, that are begging right now. Right. Uh, jobs, jobs that cause businesses to lose uh, billions because uh, they can't they can't open. Right. Uh, uh, the downside, and, and I'm, I'm quoting an economist from the American Enterprise Institute from the Washington Post. I'm paraphrasing. He says it should have been done gradually. <laughs> you know, there should have been a planned withdrawal. Mm-hmm. It's almost like people on narcotics. Uh, you can either go cold turkey or, or you can take them down uh, slowly. Yeah. Um, you know, the American Enterprise Institute argues we should have taken them down slowly. Yeah. Uh, Biden is, is taking them off cold turkey, and that's causing uh, just, uh, a, just a revolt in the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, which seems to be its largest wing these days. Yeah, or the most influential for sure. Jim McTagg, again, author of uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Two great murder mysteries. I really appreciated uh, reading them, especially because they're located in Washington, D.C. and have all the politics involved that you can imagine. Uh, Jim McTagg, uh, MC, capital T-A-G-U-E. Jim, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob, and uh, let's all consult our tax attorneys. There you go. (laughs) Happy Labor Day. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, will be joining us. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen up in Madison, Wisconsin. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. He'll be joining us as well as my wife, Linda. We'll be talking about current global affairs as well. I hope, and by the way, I always appreciate hearing from you. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail. BobHardnetHotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. 
Dot com. <laughs>